Imagine that, that you're in a courtroom. The accused is called to attention. He stands at the bar facing his accusers. And the, now imagine that before there's any attempt to prove the charges against the one that's been accused, he just starts confronting his accusers. And, and the surprise of all things as he confronts his computers, accusers is that he admits blatantly, I'm guilty of what you accuse me of. But in a turn of the tables, he says, but that's not my problem. And it's not a condemnation upon me. It's a condemnation upon you. Can't imagine that would go super well. <coughs> but minus the, the actual presence of the courtroom, that's essentially what Jesus does in our passage today. These leaders of Jerusalem have come to him and said, you're guilty of heresy. You are claiming to be God in the flesh. And while Jesus, not admitting to heresy, does say, you're right. I am God in the flesh, and I will not be condemned for that. You will be condemned for not recognizing that. The tension and the drama here is high. We've already been told that these men have set their face towards his death. They're going to kill him. That's their intent. Unless he were to repent and say, oh, you're right, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not God. But he is not going to do that. He is going to continue on this track. For he is the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come in the flesh. And he is guilty of claiming to be God in the flesh. But for the Jewish leaders, unless they repent, things will not go well for them. So as Jesus, though, stands before them, he appeals in, to, in this passage to various witnesses. We're going to look at three of them. There, there's three or four here. We're going to point out three uh, to, to prove the validity of his claim to this deity. And so as we come before this passage, as we think about this passage, we're... To, we're, we're called to place ourselves in this audience before Jesus this morning, to ask ourselves uh, the questions that Jesus was calling these Jewish leaders to ask. He was asking them, who do you say that I am? Now, they've been clear that they don't think he's who he says he is. But he wants to, you, you've got to deal with, if I'm not the Messiah, who am I? And second, what do you do with the evidence of, of these witnesses? And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we walk through this text together. All right, let me read for us John chapter 5, verse 30, uh, down through the end of the chapter. Give great attention to the reading of the very word of God. Uh, Jesus speaking says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that, that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not, do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. 
Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us understanding this morning. But not just in our heads, but that you would change our hearts. That you would help us to deal with any false ideas that we have of who you are, who Christ is. That we would repent of the sin in our own life. As we look at this passage, God, help us to understand the truth of the gospel, the beauty that Christ has come. And as he tells these Jewish leaders, God, he has come to explain these things so that they might be saved, that we might be saved. So give us faith. Help us to believe, to trust in you, and and find that you, even before we loved you, you had first loved us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we jump in, the first verse here, verse 30, is sort of a summary of the passage before that we looked at back on on April 7th. Jesus is emphasizing here that he's not some rogue agent rebelling against the authority of God. He's arguing that he is God in the flesh that his will and the Father's will are one and the same will. They can't be separated. We dealt with that, like I said, a few weeks ago. And so the main point here, the main point of the previous passage is that Jesus cannot act against the Father's will. That's impossible because they are one. And so we talk about one God and three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is making the point that the thing that unifies them or the evidence, one of the evidences that unifies them is that they have one will, one purpose, one thing in mind. All right, so let's look at verse 31. This is sort of a confusing verse, uh, maybe on the surface. He says, um, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Okay, now we know Jesus can't lie. He's perfect. So what is he saying here? If if um, if, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He's actually making a legal argument here, not a, he's saying, I know that if, if one person comes by himself to bear witness to something, it won't hold up in a court of law. That's what he's getting at. And that's the reason that that is because Jewish law has established um, that one witness is not sufficient evidence uh, against someone accused of a crime. There's a necessity of two witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 says this. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so Jesus, like I said, sort of turning the tables a little bit. There's not going to be, the the Jewish people aren't presenting witnesses against him at this point. But he's going to turn the table and say, I'm going to present witnesses in my defense. And he's going to make sure that he presents more than two because he wants to make, you know, he wants to prove a point to them that, that his arguments are valid, that would even hold up in a court of law at this point. All right, so he presents these witnesses as evidence of who he truly, truly is. The first witness that he presents here is John the Baptist, verses 33 through 35. He says, you sent to John, he has borne witness to the truth. 
Not that the testimony I received was from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He says, he was a burning and shining lamp. You are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So he says, you sent to John. You thought highly of John when you heard that he was a prophet predicting the coming of the Messiah. You were, and you heard, and you may have heard lots of things. There were, he was this weird kind of prophet guy. He had traces of Ezekiel and, and those guys within him. And so you, he's starting to get a crowd and some stuff. You actually sent to him to see what he was saying. You were enamored with him. You appreciated the life that he had done. He says, but he says, John was simply a lamp. Now a lamp doesn't exist to bring glory to itself. A lamp exists to give glory to the things that it shines light upon. And Jesus says, John was simply a lamp who was shining upon me that you might see my glory. This wasn't about John's glory. Remember, John said, I become lesser that he might become greater. A lamp doesn't exist to bring its own self-glory. In Psalm 132, the psalmist speaks of a lamp that God has prepared for his anointed one. And by using this language, by going calling back to that psalm in this, remember, these are, these are guys who would have been immensely uh, familiar with the Old Testament. They knew it well. That was their job, to be experts in particularly the law, but even all of the Old Testament. And so when he speaks of this lamp, they probably would have thought of Psalm 132. And by using this language, Jesus is telling the Jewish leaders, in rejecting John as a faithful prophet, because remember, they were enamored with him, but then when he said, no, 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 Jesus is the Messiah, they were done with John. <laughs> he wasn't prophesying the things they wanted him to prophesy right and so they turned on him but he says look he is the lamp that Psalm 132 that God had promised in 132 to shine upon the Messiah and by rejecting him you're putting yourself in the place of those who were left out in Psalm 132 not those who recognized the truth but those who rejected the truth and he's telling you by rejecting John and his prophecy which says that Jesus is the Messiah you are rejecting the truth of God. And so he's making this point using their, the, things, you know, the things that they are experts in to, to, to go against him, to hold against him. He says, you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Like I said, they wanted the Messiah to come, but they didn't want Jesus to be the Messiah. They didn't want a Messiah that looked like Jesus. They had in their own mind what the Messiah would be, but God sent an actual Messiah to save their souls. And they resisted against that. They, they wanted a, a, a military leader to rush in on a white horse to cleanse their land of the Roman occupation. But yet God sends a savior for their souls. But in their eyes, they didn't need salvation. Their good works were taking care of that part. They needed someone to solve their national problems, not their personal problems. They were deceived in that. But, of course, it's this deception that kept them from continuing to rejoice in John as a prophet or to, to see the truth about Jesus. Because here's the bottom line for them. If these Jewish leaders were genuine children of God, they would recognize the light that John was shining, and they would recognize the Messiah upon whom he was shining. All right, so that's the first witness. The second witness is the witness of Jesus' own works. Of course, the Jewish leaders are well aware of the miraculous works that Jesus is doing. For example, they knew he had healed the man, you know, this lame man at this pool in Bethesda. They had probably heard that he had turned water into wine. They had probably heard that he went into the temple and cleansed the temple, all those things. They obviously knew these things. That's the main reason they were, they were against him. 
But in verse 36, he points to these works as a second witness. Look at 36 with me. It says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He says, okay, so my works, the things I'm doing, the miracles and all the works that I'm doing, bear witness that God has sent me to do this, that I am the Messiah that comes from him. That's the point. Um, So Nicodemus, who remember him from chapter 3, he was the Jewish leader who came to Jesus in the night. Uh, He told Jesus that he had come to talk to him because he recognized in Jesus something that no one could do the things that he, had do, he was doing. He said, I recognize the things that you're doing. These are things that no one can do unless you had been sent by God. So Nicodemus got it. Remember, because of fear of his colleagues, he came under the cover of darkness, trying to figure out if, how much is this going to cost me before I jump in? Is this worth the cost that it's going to be to me? So when Jesus does miracles... What we're seeing here is he's not just motivated by his love for the sick or the lame, although he does love the sick or the lame, sick and the lame. His, he's actually presenting evidence that he's the Messiah. His miracles are signposts pointing to the fact that he is the one who has come from God, the one who was prophesied of in, in days of old. The only logical explanation for what Jesus is doing is that he is the Messiah. Nicodemus recognized that. Jesus is pointing that out. John the Baptist knew that. God had given him revelation. But these Jewish leaders are missing this. All right, so the third witness is the witness of God the Father is revealed in the Scriptures. Some people say there's four witnesses here, God and the Scriptures. But the argument that he makes is that the Scriptures are the Word of God. Therefore, God is the the witness through the Scriptures here. Verses 37 and 38, he says, The Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So there's a condemnation here and a rejection of Jesus. He's going to argue that there's a rejection of the word of God. And so if Jesus says the Father himself has borne witness here. He says, you know, you do not have his word abiding in you. He says, if you, what he's saying is, if you truly understand the teaching of the scriptures, which you claim to understand is his revelation to you, then you would believe in the one whom he has sent. You get the weight of that accusation? These are experts in the law. Their entire existence centers around understanding the scriptures. And Jesus is accusing them of not understanding what the very scriptures that they are, they are experts in what those scriptures are about. Can you imagine the anger welling up within them? These are experts in the law, doctors in the law. And Jesus is saying, you study the scriptures and you don't get it. The Jews believed that the, the scriptures, what they studied, were the word of God. But Jesus says that they've never heard John's, God's voice. Jesus is telling them that studying the scriptures and having the word of God abiding you, that's living in you, exposing your sin, correcting your ways, um, that studying the scriptures and having them abiding you are actually two different things. And these guys are experts in understanding the words of scripture. Where Jesus is trying to encourage us to be experts in knowing and understanding and having the scriptures abide in us, cut to the very heart of us. When Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active like a sword that cuts us to the marrow, that's what Jesus says is the goal. The goal is not understanding, although that's part of the goal, a step in the goal. 
It has to go beyond that to get to the heart of who we are, to let the scriptures actually deal with us, to, to bring the weight of the law and the truth of God's word upon us that we might repent and believe. That's the purpose of the law. And so we, we're Presbyterians. We're doctrinalists, right? We can fall into this. We can get all of our I's dotted and our T's crossed theologically. Absolutely true for me. My job is to teach. That's, you know, so I can, look, I've been doing this long enough. I can write sermons every week without it ever dealing with my own heart. It's a danger I face every week. I, I think that's probably true for lots, if not most, pastors. And so we've, we've got to be careful that we aren't just proud of getting our doctrine straight, but that we're actually opening ourselves up before the Word of God and saying, God, deal with me. Deal with my sin. Expose my sin that I might repent, that I might fling myself upon your mercy. Not because that's what the preacher says to do, but because I'm desperate for you. Because I see my fallenness. And I need nothing more than for you to work within me. The Jewish leaders hadn't gotten to that point. They knew the words of Scripture. But it hadn't dealt with their own lives, their own hearts. We want to be people who have the, the word of God abiding in us. And so the Jewish leaders are so concerned about keeping the law that they missed the point of the law. Look, the Old Testament has two main points. The first one is that everyone is a sinner. Adam and Eve were sinners. Their kids were sinners. Noah was a sinner. Abraham was a sinner. Isaac was a sinner. Jacob was a sinner. Moses was a sinner. David was a sinner. On and on and on and on. The Old Testament is a history of God's people and their brokenness. And they're running from God. They're seeking other gods. Embracing lesser idols. That's the whole story. We go, well, this is where we learn who God is? Yes, because what we learn about God is that he loves and cares for fallen and broken people. These people, like all people, like us are people in need of a savior. And so the second point that the Old Testament makes is that God is consistently saying, yes, you are fallen, but I'm sending a rescuer. I'm sending a savior to rescue you out of your sin, out of the penalty of your sin, to redeem fallen sinners, to provide us with atonement for our sins. That's the second main point. One, you are a sinner. Second, God is sending a redeemer, a rescuer. Somehow these experts in the law have taken the Old Testament and turned it into a manual for self-salvation. If you keep the law, God will be so pleased with you that he must reward you with salvation for all of the law-keeping that you have done. But they've missed the point. Should we keep the law? Yes. But not to save ourselves, but because we have been saved by the mercy of God. The right understanding of the Old Testament would have revealed to them that, they can't, that we can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. The question for us is, how do we know if we've fallen into that same trap? Have we fallen into the trap of self-salvation? And how would we know if we've fallen into that pit? Well, I think the, the way is to know that, to ask ourselves a question. You know, if we think that there is something that we can do to earn God's love, or to make him love us more, then we've fallen into that trap. 
Heavenly was talking to me this week about the love of God. She's just memorized John 3.16 at school, and she's excited about those things, and she was talking to me about the love of God. God's love is so great for us. Dad, God's love is so great for us. I said, that is that's a great thing to know. What do we do in response to that? Well, you know, if God loves us, how are we supposed to re- respond to that love? And she goes, we have to be good. And I said, well, we should be good. You're right. There's nothing wrong with being good. But being good isn't going to get us there. What do we need to do? We need to repent. I explained this to her in six-year-old terms. We need to repent, confess our sins, admit that we're sinners who need a Savior, and believe that Jesus is the Savior that God sent. She goes, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus died for all of our sins on the cross. Yes! We should be good, but we're good in response to the fact that God loves us. We're good because it pleases the one who has already been gracious to us. Not to earn this grace. That's an oxymoron. You can't earn grace. We, we want to obey. We want to please God. We should please God. There are consequences when we don't please God. But we don't earn his favor. He loves us so much that he demonstrated that love by sending Jesus to die for our sins. How great a love is this? Right? The, the, old, hymn, uh, the, old, you know, the old hymn writer said that we could, we could, take, you know, we could fill the, the, our pens with the waters of the oceans and not have enough, uh, enough ink to write of the, the love of God. <laughs> deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free free and our response is to keep the law to pursue the law not to earn his favor but because he has loved us so much that we should want to live for his glory so let's don't fall into the trap of self-salvation it's damning as we'll see here as we go forward But the main point that Jesus is making here in this section is that all the scriptures point to him. The New Testament, as well as the Old, is consistent in teaching that this Savior, Jesus, is the main point of the Old Testament. So the New Testament teaches that Jesus is the main point of the Old Testament. On the road to Emmaus, remember after the resurrection, Jesus is walking with some of his disciples. And he's explaining to them what the Old Testament is all about. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What's Jesus' point? All of those things point to me. They're all about Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul's talking to Timothy and he says, "Um, I know how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Ancient writings, Old Testaments. He says, I know that you are, you, from, from birth, your mom and your grandmother have made you acquainted with the, with the Old Testament, with the sacred writings. These things, these Old Testament writings, are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus. Not in themselves, but through what they point to, through Jesus. Look at 30, 39 and 40. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life by knowing the scriptures well. He says, and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
Jesus is saying that to miss this point, that all the scriptures point to him, is illogical. To rightly understand the Old Testament scriptures is to know Jesus. And to see that they point to and have their fulfillment in Jesus. He's saying if you under, understood the scriptures as well as you claim, you would recognize that Jesus is the one whom, in which they are talking about. And then Jesus says, you know, uh, you refuse to come to me that you might have life. He says, I do not receive glory from people. What does he mean? Wait, aren't we supposed to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Yes. But I think what Jesus says here is that, that in order for him to be glorious, he isn't dependent upon the worship of people. He's glorious all in himself. He doesn't need us to glorify him. He wants us to glorify him mainly because it's good for us. It's excellent for us to glorify him, and it does bring him glory. But he is completely glorious within his own being. There's nothing on earth can detract to or add to his glory. But we're foolish if we don't recognize that glory. Then Jesus points out the consequences of not recognizing his glory. Let's look at the uh, look at 30, I just read that, uh, 42. Uh, Jesus says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. So he says, this is evidence that you don't have the love of God within you. You may have the scripture memorized, but you don't have the love of God within you. What a damning condemnation this is of them. He's saying, if you reject the Son, you do not have eternal life. You don't even have the love of God within you. If anyone on earth has ever been confident that God loved them, it was these guys, these Jewish leaders. In, in their mind, their commitment to understanding and keeping the law of God meant that God had to love them more than anyone else. Because in their minds, they're proving themselves faithful by their hard work, by their earning of his love. They were, if, if there was a list of people that God's loved, God loved, they were convinced that they were at the top of the list. But they were deceived by their own image of themselves. They were actually rejecting the love of God by opposing and rejecting Christ, the Messiah that he sent. Jesus continues to point out the hypocrisy of the Jews here. He points out that they are willing to give consideration to men who come to them proclaiming their own authority. See that in, in, um, in 43. He says, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. He says, but if another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. So there's these false messiahs running around saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah, and they're, they're saying things that these Jewish leaders like, so the Jewish leaders are tempted to follow after them. They give them attention. They give them an audience. They let them peddle their wares, so to speak. And he says, you receive them, and they're not even, they're coming in their own name. Their, their only evidence is who whatever they claim to be, and yet your ears are tickled by them? But I'm the actual Messiah, and yet you do not give any attention to me. They're too busy patting each other on their backs for their law-keeping to see that Jesus is the one who has come from God. Jesus points out that they are offended that he stands in judgment of them. You know, you're, you're offended that I'm going to judge you. He says, I don't even need to judge you. Moses himself, the one that you love, the giver of the law, he's going to condemn you. He's, he's condemning of you. Regardless of what I say, Moses condemns you. That's what he's saying here. He, so he's doubling down on, this, uh, on his offense and 
tells them it's not just you know, his condemnation that they need to be concerned about. It's their hero, Moses. So Moses also condemns them for, uh, for not rightly understanding and recognizing that the writings of Moses point to the true Messiah. The writings of Moses point to Jesus. Moses wrote of the perfect law, which all men are required to keep. But Jesus is the only one who can keep the law perfectly. Moses wrote of the Passover lamb. Yet the lamb's sacrifice in the Old Testament didn't bring eternal salvation, but they did point to the one who would lay down his life, take our sins upon himself, secure salvation for those who repent and believe. Moses wrote so many things, all of which, the main point of them all is that we are all, from the most righteous to the most depraved of us, all of us are sinners who need a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior that we need. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The consequences of not recognizing Jesus as the long-promised Messiah are dire. Without him, there's no payment for, for the penalty of our sins. Without him, there is no righteousness to substitute for our own. Without Jesus, there is no hope. For he is the one and only Savior who has come from God to bring salvation to our world. Think about this. He says... There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Hope. Where do we set our hope? We've already talked about the fact that we can fall in the trap of setting our hope in what we do. We could set our hope on the knowledge that we have of Scripture the love that we have for our neighbors. All of these are great things. We could set our hope on the fact that maybe we've raised our children well or that we're committed to, to some, some standard of morality. And we've been able to keep that. We set our hope on all these things. I come to church even on the Sunday after Easter. I set my hope on these things. But yet none of those things can save us. Some of those things may be evidence that God's at work in us, that we're saved. But the only thing that saves us is recognizing the Messiah. And not just seeing him, but receiving him. To accept him. To take his word, Old and New Testament, all 66 books, the word of God. And all point to him as, as, being, as him being the main point of those things. To not get distracted away from him by those things. But to understand that to rightly understand and to practice the things in the word is to walk with Jesus. To see him as the end of all those things. The glorious one to whom all those things point. And so what should our lives do? Our lives should point to his glory and not our own. Yeah. If you went and talked to the Jewish leaders, my suspicion is they wouldn't talk of God, but of themselves and their merit that they think earns them the favor of God. And so for us, when we're confronted to prove or to give evidence or to give witness to our own hope and salvation, what do we do? Do we point to ourselves? We might use ourselves as evidence, but not the end. What is the end? The end is that God demonstrated his love for us. And that even while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. There's a Messiah, the one through whom all the scriptures point. And he came and he laid down his life. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then, as Titus as Titus 2 says, we become zealous for good works. Not works that cause our salvation, but works that flow from our salvation. That's the Christian life. And that's what Jesus is trying to point out to these Jewish leaders. You've only gotten part of this. The knowledge, the, the knowledge is good. But the knowledge wrongly understood or wrongly applied or not followed to its end, which is Jesus, is worthless. It's just knowledge. Jesus is the main point. Everything points to Jesus. There's nothing in the scriptures that doesn't point us ultimately to Jesus Christ as the hope and the only hope for sinners who need a Savior. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Would you give us a hunger and thirst for it? That we would know it, even as the, the Jewish leaders long to know your word. Would you help us to have a hunger for understanding your word? But God, help us not to be satisfied with knowledge. Would you use your word to, to expose us, to expose our hearts, to expose our sin, to expose our fallenness, to expose the fact that we need a Savior? And then would you use your word to drive us towards Jesus, to help us see Jesus it's the main point of the scriptures that we might understand that everything finds its fulfillment in him and his perfect obedience to your law and his perfect fulfillment of your will and his perfect love for us as sinners and his perfect sacrifice on our behalf and the power that raised him from the dead and the power that's going to bring him back from glory to bring judgment to this earth. God, would you help us to live in that hope, in that power and the in repentance and faith and response to your love for us. Give us a deep, deep understanding of your word. An understanding that drives us to utter dependence upon your mercy as revealed in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace. We thank you that our salvation is free. We know we can't earn it. Help us to live dependent upon you, hating our sin, loving righteousness, zealous for good works. Thank you for Jesus. Holy Spirit, work these things deep into our lives. That our, that our lives might reflect this. That they might be lived for you and for your glory above all things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.